Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm your host for today, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David R. M. Beck, a professor of Native American Studies at the University of Montana. We're going to be discussing his latest book, Unfair Labor, American Indians and the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm pleased to be here. Why don't we begin just by hearing a little bit about you. Tell us your background and tell us how you became involved in Native American studies and in history. Sure. Uh, I'm... I'm a white guy from just outside of Chicago, Illinois, uh, and I went to undergraduate school at Northwestern University where I studied American culture, and then I worked for about six years before going on to grad school. And at at some point I realized that I did want to continue my studies, and I just wasn't sure what field I wanted to do it in because American culture is kind of a broad liberal arts and social sciences-based degree, and I knew I liked uh, a lot of the different things that I had studied there. And as I was working in kind of a remote area in east, north, or east central Washington state, uh, my father actually sent me, back in the old days before the internet, sent me a photocopy of an introduction to a book by a man named Eric Wolf, and the book was called Europe and the People Without History. Uh, And it took me quite a while to get through just the introduction to that. But to me, it was fascinating uh, that he was trying to, in in Europe, to study how um, people who were not the main actors in history, how history affected them, and how do you do that kind of work and research. Uh, And so then at that point, I thought, okay, uh, I think I'm going to Uh, go to graduate school in the field of history so that I can be one of those people who gets to tell the stories of people who are uh, oftentimes written out of history. Uh, Only much later did I learn that Eric Wolf is actually an anthropologist, but that started me in the field of history. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, where I uh, began uh, studying history, and as I was as I was going through my studies, there was actually a privately run American Indian College in Chicago, NACE College, where I knew some of the people who worked at the college, and one of them, uh, a man named Michael Chapman, a Menominee fellow, uh, asked me to do a project that he told me was going to be a two-week-long project. Uh, and he had a little bit of funding to pay me. So I thought, sure, I, that sounds good. What's the project? And he said, well, we need to find all the sources in Chicago, the archival sources and documentary sources 
about the Chicago American Indian community and kind of make a list of those. Uh, and he said, uh, two weeks is probably too much time, but I'll pay you for the full two weeks. Uh, it turned out there was an awful lot of material uh, in throughout Chicago relating to the Chicago Indian community going back to the 19th century and through the 20th century. Uh, and so it was a project that actually took me two years to complete. I did get paid for the first two weeks of it. Uh, but what I did was uh, put together uh, an annotated bibliography of those sources, and I published that bibliography. Uh, it turned out that that served as, uh, in, in lieu of a master's thesis for me, uh, I had about seven pages of narrative at the beginning and then uh, about 277 pages of bibliographic sources that I annotated. Uh, so I always tell people that I had the world's shortest master's thesis with the world's longest bibliography. Uh, and <laughs> as, as I was publishing that, uh, I asked uh, a really a preeminent anthropologist from the University of Chicago, a man named Saul Tax, if he would write the preface for me. And he did. Uh, and uh, as, I, as he finished that, he asked me what I was doing next. And I said, well, it was time for me to figure out a dissertation topic for uh, my uh, history work, historical work. And he, he suggested uh, a, pro, uh, a gargantuan project. He said, well, we need to know who all the indigenous people in the world were before the uh, Columbi Colombian expansion and the Russian overseas uh, overland expansion, I mean, and uh, where they are and how they survived and why they survived. Uh, and I thought, well, I could take a look at maybe one group of those people and focus on them. And uh, the same fellow who had hired me to do the bibliography, Michael Chapman, said to me, well, that's a great idea, and why don't you do it on my tribe? Why don't you do it on the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin? Uh, and I had another friend uh, whose name was Ada De is Ada Deer. Uh, she uh, was a major, played a major role in the tribe's 20th century history, and then Later on in the Clinton administration, she became the first woman to run the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, and when I talked to her about it, she also said, yeah, please do your work on the Menominee uh, tribe. And so I thought, you know, as a white guy writing about uh, an Indian community, I, wanted, I, I didn't want to be somebody who just came into that community. It, it helped to be invited in. Uh, by people who wanted me to um, produce their uh, a, his, a history of their community. Uh, and so that became the basis of my uh, dissertation and kind of pushed me in the direction of American Indian history. And then the president of the college that I did the bibliography for, the American Indian College, NACE College, asked me if I would... Um, first direct their tribal research center there and teach history there and to um, eventually become a dean of their campus there. And so for the uh, first eight years of my career, then I worked at that college uh, and 
was really immersed in uh, Indian community issues. We were a college that had campuses in Chicago, uh, in Minneapolis, on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation here in Montana, and on the Menominee Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. And so both uh, I ended up working with, and we only had one degree that we offered students, and that was a public policy degree that focused on American Indian public policy. So I got a real education in both reservation and urban Indian community issues uh, that kind of led me into the field of Native American studies, which is much broader than Native American history. Uh, and then in the year 2000, uh, when a job opened up here at the University of Montana I, and I applied for it, I was fortunate enough to be hired here in the Native American Studies Department. I, it, I was really excited about this place because we actually have a standalone Native American Studies Department, meaning that all of us in our department are actually appointed into Native American Studies and we're not borrowed from other departments like many Native Studies programs are. And so it's, uh, it's given me an opportunity to be with colleagues who focus entirely in their work on what's happening in American Indian communities. And my colleagues are from anthropology and literature uh, and history and other fields. And so it's been a real blessing to be able to um, focus specifically on uh, Native-related issues and American Indian-related issues in all of my teaching and, of course, in all of my research. And what path did you take to writing this book? Why did you decide to write a book about Native people at the 1893 World's Columbian Expo specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, uh, of course, I think it began with that bibliography that I did on the Chicago American Indian community way back in the 80s, uh, 1980s, uh, because one of the things that I found a considerable amount of um, documentation of was American Indians participating in the World's Fair in Chicago. Uh, and I had started writing other things about the Chicago American Indian community as well, uh, uh, historical articles. And then I co-wrote a book with um, Rosalind Lapeer. We called it City Indian, about American Indians in Chicago that was published in 2015, and just this summer has come out now in paperback. And that's a book about Indian activists in Chicago between the two World's Fairs, uh, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, and then in 1933 and 34, Chicago put on one of the world, uh, the um, Century of Progress World's Fairs. And so um, Chicago was kind of a hotbed for American Indian activism during those years. And so we wrote about what was happening in an urban Indian community uh, at a time when histo that historians have largely uh, in the past overlooked. Most urban Indian histories begin with an era known as relocation when the federal government in the 1950s was starting to move Indian people off of reservations and into cities. Uh, and we pushed that history back uh, to the late 19th and mostly the early 20th century. And so uh, 
as we were writing that, one of the early chapters in that book focuses on the 1893 World's Fair. Uh, and it seemed to me that uh, although we could only devote a few pages of that in that book uh, to the World's Fair, it seemed to me that there was a bigger story to tell there. Uh, there was a Potawatomi man, a leader of the Hokagan Band of Potawatomi tribe uh, in Michigan, named Simon Pokagan, uh, who spent his lifetime advocating for uh, compensation for his community. They uh, were the tribe that sold the land that became the city of Chicago, but they were never fairly compensated for it. Uh, and he came to the World's Fair in 1893 and wrote a document that was published on published in Birchbark. Uh, he initially called it the Red Man's Rebuke, and then he called uh, then he changed uh, the, the title of it to be a little more friendly, the Red Man's Greeting. He called it after that, uh, but basically what he argued in that document was that because the World's Fair was celebrating uh, kind of the expansion and development of America after Columbus and as a result of Christopher Columbus's coming into this hemisphere, but, but he wrote that American Indians didn't have anything to celebrate in relation to that. And in fact, uh, it was kind of, in many ways, he viewed it as a death knell to a lot of American Indian cultural practices uh, and so it was a real rebuke of the fair itself. Uh, and I was quite familiar with that document. So I, I, I was really interested in the fair in the way that most scholars were at the time, uh, going back to the, even the 70s and 1980s and 1990s, which is the way that Indians were represented in, um, in ex exhibits at the fair, uh, and were represented to the larger public, and, and maybe how did they respond to that. And I had read Robert Rydell's book, All the World's Affair, which uh, it gives a, a good overview of uh, kind of the colonial impacts of the fair on Native, and perspectives of the fair, on fair of fairs on Native people. Uh, and I'd also read a short article by a uh, a man named Ray Fogelson, who uh, wrote an uh, article called uh, the, the Red Man in the White City. The Columbian Exposition was referred to as the White City because the buildings, even though they were mostly built out of plaster, were all painted white. It was a beautiful white city. So kind of contrasting the Indian perspective, perspective of how they were treated at the fair with the American perspective of the fair as a kind of a harbinger of the future. Uh, and so uh, I, while I was interested in all those things, I realized that they really only focused on representation, which really only to a small extent gets at what the uh, American Indian perspectives of their role at the fair was. Um, these earlier writings on the fair focused on representation of Indians and how Indians responded to that rep, those representations. But like I said, I thought that there was a larger story of why Indians were participating in the fair in the first place. 
Uh, this was a time of great um, uh, depression economically in Indian country. Indian economies were in a free fall. It was very shortly after the bison disappeared from the plains, for example. Uh, and federal policies were only impoverishing Indians more as they continued to reduce Indian land bases. And in some cases, Indian people were literally starving. Uh, and uh, although Indian people and communities had funds, uh, oftentimes that they were paid in exchange for their land, the use of those funds was severely restricted by the federal government, which controlled nearly all of Indian money, not only on the tribal level, but on the, on the individual level as well. When Indian individuals would receive money, the federal government would put it in the U.S. Treasury, and then the Indians would have to justify literally every penny that they withdrew from their funds. So, I mean, the, if grandma would need to buy some food uh, to feed her family, she'd go to the agent and she'd say, I need 18 cents to buy flour and to buy uh, some other necessities. And the agent would say, well, I think you can do it with 12 cents. So I'll let you withdraw 12 cents from your uh, account. This was you know, her own money, but she didn't really have access to it. So American Indian people, one of the ways they dealt with that across the United States was by beginning to participate in, in the cash economy and going uh, off of the reservation to earn money that they would be paid in cash that they could use then uh, at their own discretion. And so, um, one of the ways that people did this was to participate in expositions and Wild West shows where they would be paid uh, for their work. And so uh, a lot of this was beginning to occur in the late 19th century. And it turns out that the World's Fair in Chicago represents kind of a pivotal time uh, for this entry into the cash economy for a lot of Native people, uh, and it provides an, uh, a good opportunity for us as historians to kind of analyze how this impacted uh, tribal communities uh, across the United States, and in some cases beyond the United States. I want to start with the title of the book because it's a slightly unusual title in that you frame it actually as a question, unfair labor question mark. So my question for you then is why did you do this? Why is this the, the specific central question to this book? <laughs> sure. Uh, beyond the play on words. I began with the notion that, uh, or, or with the kind of preconception that, uh, Indians would be treated unfairly in the labor market, as they were in many cases. Uh, and as I got farther into my research, I began to realize that, uh, yes, that was true in many cases. But in some cases, uh, Indians were able to, uh, Indians and other indigenous peoples at the fair, were able to um, negotiate better salaries, um, gain 
uh, somewhat decent or sometimes better than decent compensation. Uh, and so it kind of became a to what extent question. To what extent was, were Indians treated fairly in the labor market of the fair? Uh, and so it turned from a statement to a question. And that kind of became the thesis of the book. I thought it was a good way to frame the thesis of the book by just asking that question. Was uh, their labor fair at the fair uh, fairly treated? Were they fairly compensated? I wanted to look at the role that they played, that Native people, Indigenous people, American Indians played uh, at the fair from kind of a broader perspective. And as I did, as I was thinking about it, I realized that a focus on labor was essential for understanding the ways that um, Native people participated in the fair. Uh, it's just kind of fairly recently that, uh, that the historiography has begun to pay attention to American Indian labor history, especially in relation to the cash economy in the late 19th and 20th century. And kind of it, it strikes me that kind of an important part of the question is, uh, to what extent are Native people given a fair chance to participate in the modernizing world? Uh, you know, they're viewed oftentimes by the larger public as people of the past. And so if they want to be, and, and they don't view themselves as people of the past, they view themselves as people living in the present and living for the future. So how do they push the boundaries against those stereotypes uh, to build their own place in a modernizing uh, United States or a modernizing America? Uh, and how do they do that kind of in the face of federal policies that at the time were focusing largely on assimilating American Indians into American society and into American culture? What opportunities for those people who did want to become part of the American society, what opportunities did they actually have? How far could they go in, in becoming part of modern America? Uh, and part of that has to do with what kind of jobs can people get? Uh, will they be fairly compensated for those jobs? Uh, and so it turns out that the World's Fair in 1893 is a place and time when we can look at those questions. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fair then. And for those who might not be familiar with the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, can you give a little bit of background to that event and uh, more generally about the role and the presence of Native people at this fair and maybe at similar World's Fairs and Expositions from the period? Sure. Um, the fair was put on a year late. Uh, it was celebrating Columbus's so-called discovery of the Americas, which and it was celebrating the 400th anniversary of it, which would have happened in 1892. Uh, but politics played a big role in uh, getting the fair off the ground. These World's Fairs were enormous events in some cases, uh, dating all the way back to 1851. And they were a place in the era before kind of um, modern entertainment where people could learn about the larger world by attending them. Uh, and so 
when there was a proposal to have the World's Fair uh, in the United States there then to, to celebrate uh, the 400th anniversary of Columbus coming to the Americas, there was a, there was a major fight between New York and Chicago uh, for who, could who would be able to host the fair. And uh, eventually Chicago won out. Um, by the time they did and by the time they could begin organizing, it became clear that the fair wouldn't actually happen until 1893. Uh, and it was a massive, massive undertaking to build out the infrastructure for the fair on the south side of Chicago, literally on the site where um, Simon Pokagan's father, uh, Leopold Pokagan, uh, a Potawatomi man, had signed the treaty ceding the land that became the city of Chicago. Uh, and the Chicago Fair itself was the most attended of all world's fairs uh, of, the, of those years from the mid to late 1800s into the early 1900s. Some 27 million people came to Chicago. Well, some 27 million people attended the fair or bought tickets to the fair, and, and some people bought tickets for more than one day, so the actual number was smaller than that. But there were 27 million entries to the fair, which is just an enormous number, uh, almost a quarter of the U.S. population size at the time. Um, and organizers of that fair and other fairs oftentimes wanted to include indigenous people and, and include people from around the world so that fairgoers could kind of get a glimpse of other people's cultures. But when they wanted to include indigenous people, they really wanted to include them as representations of the past. And at the Chicago Fair, at the Columbian Exposition, this was something that, that more than at almost any other fair, um, American Indians and indigenous people were viewed kind of as foils to contrast, to mo in a, as a contrast to modernization. Um, and so uh, fair officials who organized the fairgrounds and organized the events wanted to have indigenous people at the fair so that fairgoers could see how far so-called civilization had advanced beyond uh, the, um, the civilizations that were here when Columbus first came to the Americas. Of course, native people were part of the modernizing world and they were trying to define their own place within it within it. Uh, and so they had a different perspective than the fair organizers had on what their role should be. So there was really this conflict between uh, how Native people participated in events like this uh, and how organizers of the fair um, perceived Native roles. Uh, it's, it's important to recognize that Native people are not monolithic uh, and, and come from many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of different tribal backgrounds, different cultural his with different cultural histories and different cultural practices. Uh, but fair organizers just kind of 
lumped them all together in many ways as uh, representative of peoples of the past. Um, but I think it's important also to recognize that for Native people, participation in the fair uh, was, was a very important uh, part of their lives, uh, both during the fair and in the two years leading up to the fair, when the fair was being organized and organizers were going out to Indian communities and indigenous communities throughout the Americas, uh, the United States, Canada, Latin America, uh, collecting items for display uh, and trying to um, decide which peoples they would bring to put on display as well. Well, let's talk a bit more about that moment. And uh, an, an important character in the book is a guy by the name of Frederick Putnam. Um, can you tell us why he was so important to this story and kind of more broadly what the role of the burgeoning field of anthropology was in the story that you're telling here? Sure. In some ways, it may seem counterintuitive to start with uh, Putnam, but it's real. I think if you understand what Putnam's role was, in organizing the fair, uh, it provides a good key to understanding the role of native people at the fair. Uh, he, more than anyone, defined the official role of the fair organizers in relation to native people, uh, although native people, of course, defined what they wanted to get out of the fair. Uh, and so uh, it's helpful to understand where Putnam was coming from. He was one of the founders of the modern field of anthropology as it began to move into universities. He was a Harvard uh, professor, and he ran the Peabody Museum at Harvard University. Uh, and he was charged early on with developing the ethnology display or the anthropology display at the fair. And he viewed this as a real opportunity to bring anthropology uh, into the consciousness of the larger public and, and, and really, in many ways, the, the Columbian Exposition did succeed in doing that. Um, and uh, it began to define the field in a way that would be, these, uh, that would be um, represented in museums, for example, natural history museums across the United States and beyond. Uh, for many, many years, decades to come. Uh, he was uh, really wanted to uh, prove that American anthropology was on a par with European anthropology, and he wanted to um, prove that uh, anthropologists in the United States and in the Americas, by studying indigenous communities here, we're doing as work that was important, for example, as the work that the Egyptologists were doing. Um, and he spent the first two years, or the two years before the fair, um, organizing a massive, massive collection of material objects to display in the anthropo anthropological display which he was able to um, acquire, he was able to acquire a building 
that was strictly a building for the anthropological display. Uh, and so uh, he organized his students and others uh, to fan out across the United States and across Canada and across Latin America to collect material objects of material culture to put on display from indigenous communities. Now, most of those collectors were non-Indians. There were he did hire several American Indian collectors among the more than 100 collectors that he hired, and so there were there were uh, three people at least who were paid uh, out of the funds that Putnam had for the fair to go out and collect uh, material culture objects from tribal communities. There were many other people in tribal communities who were able to benefit economically from this. Uh, when the collectors went to tribal communities, they oftentimes had to hire guides, they had to hire interpreters, uh, and they purchased uh, either objects that people had in their own possession, or they hired people to create objects or display at the fair. Uh, and so one of the things that I wanted to explore was the, the economic impact that this collection had on tribal communities across the Americas, across the United States. And of course, there was great variation from place to place. Um, Putnam wanted to be thrifty, uh, but on the other hand, um, people in many tribal communities already had a, a, a pretty deep knowledge of the value of the things that they were being asked to sell. Uh, and so uh, they would negotiate for uh, the prices they wanted for those objects in those communities where there was already a pattern of collecting going on, either by museum collectors uh, or by uh, individual tourists who wanted to um, have displays in their own homes, for example, or in their businesses. Uh, and so in some communities, the prices were fairly um, high for those objects that people were selling. In other communities, uh, oh, it, so some of those communities, like along the northwest coast, there was already a thriving trade in these kind of objects. Or in some of the places in the eastern United States and even Canada, there was a thriving trade. In other places, uh, that trade hadn't really started yet, and the collectors hadn't really uh, been to those communities uh, to uh, buy objects for museums or for their homes. And so uh, in some of those other communities, uh, the collectors could acquire a lot more for less money uh, because um, there wasn't a competitive market yet in those communities. Uh, and so there was a great variation in the experience that uh, Native people had with Putnam's collectors. Uh, but Putnam's collectors really, in some ways, um, defined what uh, even other people collecting for their displays for the fair would have to pay for uh, objects in, in Native communities. Uh, the Canadian government was very frustrated because when they wanted to buy things, 
uh, on the cheap in Indian communities. They oftentimes found that Putnam's collectors had been there first and that the um, and was paying higher prices than the Canadian government wanted to pay. And so uh, Native individuals would sell to Putnam instead of the Canadian government for their display. Uh, in the United States, state governments were gathering displays for their state buildings, and they ran into the same thing. So Putnam's collectors really defined the field in that way. Um, and then when we get to the actual fair itself uh, that opened in uh, 1893, Putnam really uh, had hoped to control all of the displays of American Indians on the fairgrounds. Uh, and in, initially, that's what he planned to do. He was unable to do that. Uh, the federal government was opposed to this, and the federal government of the United States wanted to control the Indian displays, but they had hardly any money that they were putting into the fair. So they reached a compromise fairly early on, uh, where the federal government would create a display of the Indian boarding schools uh, and Putnam then would be able to have a display of a living Indian village that he would be in control of. And so as his collectors were going across the Americas, they were not only buying things, but they were also negotiating with people who might come and live at the fair. Putnam's original idea was to have people from a hundred or so American Indian communities in villages at the fair, but uh, his funding was limited as well, so he ended up with a, a, a much smaller number than that. But he had several different tribal communities then who sent people and uh, they brought their homes with them and constructed their homes on the fairgrounds in his ethnological village, which was juxtaposed with the Indian uh, boarding school that was built on the fairgrounds. Uh, they were both built next to each other so that people could see uh, what Putnam defined as uh, what Indians lived like before Columbus came and then go across to the Indian boarding school and see what the work of the federal government was doing in modernizing American Indians by educating children. Uh, Putnam also lost control of the Indian exhibits that were brought by entrepreneurs to the fairgrounds. And most of these exhibits were uh, in a place called the Midway Plaisance, which was kind of an avenue of curiosities. Uh, and the showman Saul Bloom took control of uh, the, the midway, as it was often referred to, and the displays there. And he was able to negotiate with the entrepreneurs who were bringing Indians for display uh, over on the midway. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, how were indigenous people represented at the fair? And perhaps more to the point, to what extent and how did they represent themselves at the fair? That's a really good question because a lot of the fight was over representation. And the organizers, as I mentioned before, viewed indigenous people as foils uh, or as representatives of a past in order to contrast it with uh, the so-called progress of Western civilization. Uh, and this was 
uh, in many ways a continuation uh, that would be continued into the future of a use as fairs to identify a Western civilization as the ultimate um, basis of empire and to justify uh, westward expansion in the United States, uh, United States overseas expansion. Uh, and nonetheless, uh, the organizers had several different perspectives and perceptions of how they would define American Indians. Uh, and sometimes it depended on whether these were entrepreneurs trying to make a buck, whether they were the scientists like Putnam, whether they were the federal officials. So some wanted to identify uh, Indians as kind of this romanticized people of the past so that uh, fairgoers fair would want to go see their displays. Others wanted to represent American Indians as kind of almost savage uh, or violent representations of the past. Uh, the federal government was interested in representing uh, Indians as being assimilated into American society, and the Canadian government was uh, had the same view as well uh, with their display. They wanted to show that what they were doing to assimilate uh, First Nations people in Canada into Canadian society was something that was good for those uh, groups of people and those individuals. Uh, and then Putnam also kind of emphasized that um, he hoped that uh, anthropologists and other scientists would come and study Indians at the fair so that they could be objects of study. Uh, American Indian people put themselves on display, most often by choice, uh, and recognized that by dressing up and being the image of Indians that Americans wanted to see that they could make a living doing that. They also recognized that when they were doing that, um, in many cases, they would be able to actually um, carry on aspects of their culture that were literally outlawed back home. Uh, the dances and the songs they were able to sing and the performances they did on the fairgrounds, for example, were things that were a long part of their traditional culture that um, if they were at home doing those things, they could be arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, and so uh, the fairgoers didn't, I mean, the fair organizers didn't really recognize this. The fairgoers who attended the fair didn't really recognize this. Sometimes government officials recognized that and, and were opposed to the things that Indians were able to do at the fair. Um, but uh, they took the opportunity then to use the fair as a way to maintain aspects of their uh, traditional culture. And there were some activists, such as Simon Pokagan and a few others, who really pushed fair organizers to recognize Indians as part of a modernizing world. Uh, they weren't particularly successful in getting the fair organizers to do this, but they were able to, um, Simon Pokagan, for example, through his writings, was able to uh, change some people's perceptions of American Indians, including the mayor of Chicago, who wanted to work with him 
to, uh, to, to help the Potawatomi benefit from some of the things that they'd been cheated out of in the past. In fact, uh, the mayor of Chicago uh, invited Pokagan to come back to the fair. Uh, they were going to work together to, uh, to try and gain compensation for some of the lands that the tribe had lost when they, or some of the funding for the lands that the tribe had lost when they sold the land that became Chicago. Um, unfortunately, the mayor was murdered the night before O'Kagan came back, so not much came of that in the short run. Uh, but uh, American Indians, as I mentioned before, uh, came from a wide variety of different backgrounds. And so some people were content to um, just make a living portraying themselves the way that the fair organizers wanted them to be portrayed. Uh, and others really pushed for uh, a different kind of a representation of American Indians. Uh, and um, most of the Indians who worked at the fair were concerned about the um, money they were making, the earnings they were making, the way they were treated in terms of their labor. Uh, so there were just a lot of different ways that uh, Indian people um, worked at being represented on the fairgrounds. Where at the fair could a visitor find Native people? What exhibits or what displays did they occupy uh, both within and on the outskirts of the fair? And why those particular spaces? There were really three major places that um, American Indians could be found on the fairgrounds. Uh, and those were the ethnological village that Putnam had organized outside of the anthropological exhibit, where there were several different native communities that brought their homes and built their villages and then lived at them for fairgoers to come and see. And they uh, uh, people oftentimes had um, craft work that they sold the fairgoers to make a little bit of money there. And then just right across from them was the uh, American Indian boarding school, where uh, several different groups of students from different Indian boarding schools came uh, and they set up the school to look similar to the way that boarding schools uh, looked and the students were supposed to be going through their lessons while uh, tourists were walking through the boarding school watching them uh, conduct their lessons. Uh, and then the third major place that um, American Indian people were on display. And this is the place that most um, historians have written about was on the Midway Plaisance, that avenue of curiosities that I mentioned that was a, a part of the fairgrounds, but kind of a separate part of the fairgrounds where you paid an extra fee to see different exhibits uh, and there were several exhibits of American Indians and indigenous people on the Midway. There was a fellow from uh, Wisconsin who brought down a group of um, native people from Wisconsin uh, to make an American Indian village there. There was a village of so-called 
a so-called village of Aztec Indians. It's not clear if they were Aztec Indians that were brought from Mexico. Uh, there was a display of native of a native Hawaiian volcano that included uh, hula dancers and singers from Hawaii who came. Uh, and so there were several exhibits on the Midway, uh, including also Sitting Bull's one of one of the two cabins that claimed to be Sitting Bull's original cabin um, with uh, Lakota people in that exhibit. Uh, there were also places where um, you could run into American Indians or go to see American Indians or indigenous people, both on and off the fairground. Uh, the Canadian government uh, also had a boarding school where they brought st uh, native students in for a similar type of display as the American boarding school. Um, the Inuit, there was a group of Inuit people uh, from the east coast of Canada who were technically part of the Midway, but they were not located there. They were located in another part of the fairgrounds. They had come early. They had come in the winter and spent much of the winter in Chicago, uh, and people had come to see them even before the fair opened. Uh, and uh, they were located uh, on the fairgrounds, but away from any other uh, exhibits uh, related to uh, indigenous people or American Indians. A Buffalo Bill, Cody, wanted to be part of the fair with his Wild West show. And the fair organizers uh, wouldn't let him lease a space on the fairgrounds. And so he leased land just a couple of blocks away outside of the fairgrounds and put on more than 600 uh, version, uh, 600 of his Wild West shows during the fair. Uh, and uh, this included... Um, cowboys, Indians, uh, people with horses from other parts of the world. It was, it was part of his regular touring show, uh, and he, he ran it throughout the entire fair. Uh, and more people attended the Buffalo Bill Wild West show than attended any of the other Indian exhibits there. And he had hired 74 Lakota people as part of his troop for the fair. Uh, and uh, they lived over uh, in his village uh, in his village at his camp uh, but many of those people regularly attended the fair at well as well and so uh, when there were parades or um, special events on the fairgrounds sometimes indians were and other indigenous people were asked to participate in those uh, and so sometimes you would go to uh, the north dakota day at the fair and Indians from North Dakota would be there, uh, even though they were technically part of other uh, exhibits. Sometimes they were paid for that, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were simply props. Uh, and, of course, many of the uh, Native and Indigenous people who came to the fair uh, were curious, like everybody else who came to the fair, and when they had time off, they went around as tourists, either on the fairgrounds or off the fairgrounds. Uh, there were other off-fairground uh, exhibits. Uh, the Inuit people, some of the Inuit people got into a fight with the entrepreneur who brought them to the fair over uh, their treatment and their pay. And uh, actually half of the Inuit village, which was called the Eskimo village at the fair, uh, 
uh, half the people left and set up their own exhibit on Stony Island Avenue across from the fairgrounds for a while. Um, and then the other place that sometimes you don't think of where people could see Indians was giving kind of academic lectures. Uh, there was an Arawak man from South America who came to the fair and um, earned money lecturing off the fairgrounds at various places in Chicago. Uh, one of the Kwakwaka'u people of the Northwest Coast, a man named George Hunt, who spent much of his later career working with France Boaz, who uh, was an anthropologist who uh, Frederick Putnam had brought in to help run the Indian exhibit. Um, George Hunt and uh, Boaz gave a lecture at the Anthropological Congress that was held at the, uh, at the fair. And so there were a lot of different places uh, where Indian people ended up working at the fair that were sometimes places that um, you would almost think were unexpected. The country of Guatemala, like uh, several other people at the fair, were trying to introduce coffee to Americans uh, and make it kind of a staple of our um, diet. And as we all know, they were, they were very successful in the long run. Um, but they brought several Mayan people up to um, play music outside of their building to kind of entice people to uh, come in and try the coffee. They also hired Mayan women to serve the coffee. Uh, so there were just a lot of different places where um, fairgoers could run into uh, Native peoples. And again, looking at this from the, the, the Native perspective, why did Native people come to the expo? Can you give a couple examples that describe their side of the story? And then similarly, toward the end of the book, you also talk about some people who specifically didn't attend. Can you talk about those people as well a bit? Sure. Um, obviously, most Native people came to work uh, as part of their uh, way of making their way in the modern world. Uh, and many came to work in displays. Uh, uh, to kind of um, represent what the fair organizers wanted them to represent. Uh, many Native people came to sell goods that they had produced, uh, and they wanted to represent themselves to the outside world in many cases. Uh, a few Native people came as tourists, uh, but most came uh, to work. Uh, so uh, a, a group of Navajo people came from the Southwest. Uh, they were originally going to be paid by the state of Colorado to work at the fair. Uh, and uh, Colorado reneged on the agreement and only paid part of what they um, promised to pay. But they came and they um, lived in their hogans uh, at the Ethnological Village. The state of New York wanted um, Haudenosaunee people from the Iroquois Confederacy to come and participate in the fair. Uh, and so they organized an exhibit of 
people who were the distinguished leaders from several of the Iroquois tribes to come and represent uh, New York's native people at the fair. Uh, the the Kwakwaka'u people from the Northwest Coast uh, came in a brought their houses to the fair and and constructed their houses on the fairgrounds. Uh, and so one of the things that Putnam was successful in doing was getting a variety people native people from a variety of different backgrounds to um, rep to be represented in his eth ethnological village. Uh, all of the people who came to work for Buffalo Bill came from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, in South Dakota. And they, even though they were identified in the show as being Indian people from a variety of different tribes, it was all Lakota people playing those roles. And many of them had already been with Buffalo Bill for a long time uh, and would continue to work for Buffalo Bill afterwards. Uh, so this was just kind of one stop along the way for them. Uh, and of course, uh, there's just a, a wide variety of ways in which Native people represented themselves to the outside world at the fair. Uh, in terms of those who didn't attend the fair, there was a significant number of Native people across the hemisphere who, on the one hand, thought that Putnam had invited them to the fair because he did, uh, and then he didn't have the funds to bring them. Or on the other hand, uh, entirely aside from Putnam's organization, wanted to come to the fair on their own. Many were denied the opportunity because they were viewed as being too civilized, quote unquote, uh, to represent what Putnam wanted uh, fairgoers to see. There were two different brass bands, one from the Santee Sioux in Nebraska and one from uh, one of the Iroquois tribes or several of the Iroquois tribes in New York who were denied the opportunity to come to the fair because they were viewed as too civilized uh, to represent the past. Um, one of the ways that some of the Iroquois people got around that is a Mohawk lacrosse team actually came to Chicago and played game against some of the native people who were in one of the Indian villages on the midway. Uh, so they were able to come and attend the fair, but they weren't able to participate in the fair in that way. The budget wasn't big enough to bring in a lot of the people who thought they had been promised to come to the fair. And so there was a lot of disappointment in Indian country from people who wanted to come. There were other cases as well that are kind of interesting cases. Uh, there, there are a group of five tribes in what's now Eastern Oklahoma, which was then called Indian Territory. And these are tribes that had been removed from the Southeastern United States to Indian Territory. And they wanted to have an Indian Territory exhibit. And so uh, they applied uh, for a spot on the fairgrounds and the State Department actually ruled that since Indian Territory didn't have a governor, they weren't like other territories, and they didn't really have a legal existence, which came as kind of a shock to the, uh, uh, to, to the tribes who legally existed in Indian Territory. And so they were um, 
denied the opportunity to come because they didn't fit into any of the categories where the federal government and the fair organizers could let them come. Now, this is the whole section. This is a, a major part of the of what's now the state of Oklahoma. And I don't know if the um, listeners are aware, some I'm sure are, that just uh, very recently, the United States Supreme Court made a major ruling uh, in a case known as the McGirt case that, in fact, that whole section that was then considered Indian territory is still all reservation land. So uh, most of eastern Oklahoma is now considered a reservation land as of 2020. But in 1893, they didn't have that legal status. Now, there was a band uh, 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 a band in Hawaii that was interested in coming to the fair and was being recruited to come to the fair. Uh, and they were a well-known band in the, in the um, kingdom of Hawaii. Uh, and they tried to negotiate a fair wage and decent travel and lodging uh, facilities and they were unable to do it. So they just decided against coming, even though they would have liked to come to the fair. Um, probably the most tragic case was a group of Indians from South America who had their way paid to come to the United States and got to the East Coast, uh, but were never able to actually make it to Chicago for the fair. So they joined uh, kind of a Wild West type show and went to Philadelphia where they were abandoned and had to walk back to New York. Uh, and one of their um, members of that community actually died on the walk back to New York uh, and uh, was then buried in the United States. So um, there were just all kinds of reasons why Native people wanted to come to the fair uh, and uh, some were able to, and some were not. I want to return uh, to one of the questions that we discussed at the beginning, and that is the, the question that forms the title of this book. So in your final analysis, was the labor of indigenous people at this exposition, in fact, fair? Yeah, and the question that I really then, the way I I framed the question was, to what extent was the labor of the indigenous people at the exposition fair? And as the answer to any to what extent question probably is, to some extent. Um, sometimes, um, on rare occasion, Native people earned uh, a wage that was similar uh, or the same as other people. Uh, when the Inuit people got into a fight with the entrepreneur who brought them to the fair. Some of them went to work doing uh, carpentry work at the fair. Chicago was a big union town already at that time. This wasn't very long after the Haymarket Affair. Uh, and so the labor unions had negotiated specific salaries that people in specific positions uh, would earn. And so when uh, a couple of those folks who left the Inuit exhibit went to work building uh, things at the fair. They would have been paid the same wage as any other laborers. Uh, so sometimes it worked out that way. I think um, 
the best compensated group of people at the fair, uh, probably without a doubt, were the people who of Native people, I should say, were the people who worked for Buffalo Bill. Uh, he had a long history of negotiating contracts with people. And I actually found all of the contracts uh, that he signed with all of the um, Lakota people who worked for him in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and they very clearly spelled out both the salaries and the other forms of compensation. So individuals were paid anywhere from $10 a month to $70 a month each. All of their transportation costs were covered. All of their food was um, provided for them. Their lodging was provided for them. And their medical care was provided for them, which people riding horses several times a day uh, rapidly across an arena, you can imagine that that would be an important um, benefit. And so uh, if you added up all those salaries among the 74 Lakota people who came, they earned uh, among them $1,890 a month. Some of that they spent uh, in local shops or on the fairgrounds, but much of it they sent home to their families. Uh, and during the time when Buffalo Bill was working, both before and after the fair, in fact, Lakota people sent so much money home that um, there were some officials who wondered where all the money was coming from at the Pine Ridge Reservation. Uh, a couple of historians and anthropologists who are experts have said that this was one time in Pine Ridge reservation history when there was at least a decent amount of cash money on the reservation that was being sent home by people who worked for Buffalo Bill uh, that helped people provide for their families. Uh, other people were not compensated very well. As I mentioned briefly the Nav before, the Navajo people who came uh, were cheated out of half of their earnings and uh, fought for those earnings to be repaid for them for several years after the fair ended, and they were just never compensated by uh, Colorado for that. Um, the Inuit people who came from Labrador were promised to be paid $100 per family who came over a two-year period, six months of which were at the fair. Uh, and they were also treated very poorly by the uh, entrepreneur who brought them. He made them wear their sealskin clothing in really hot weather all day long in Chicago. People were getting sick from doing that. Uh, as I mentioned, half of the group then actually abandoned the fairgrounds. They actually ended up suing him uh, and winning uh, one of the first international labor law cases in the United States. Uh, and the court ruled that they uh, had the right to leave his employee if they were not being treated fairly. Uh, at that point, then, he renegotiated his contract, and instead of being paid $100 for two years, uh, each family was then paid $50 a month for the rest of the time they were there. So that was a tremendous increase in the uh, amount of salary they were making. Well, the, the Indian village that came from Wisconsin uh, that was on the Midway, uh, though the uh, members of that village went on strike, I could never find out what they were originally being paid, but they apparently went on strike after they visited with the Lakota people from Buffalo Bill's exhibit. 
uh, and realized they weren't being paid fairly, and they got a dollar twenty-five a day increase in their salary. Uh, like I said, I don't know what their salary was before that. So really, the results were mixed. Uh, some people were able to use their work at the fair as a springboard to continue doing that kind of work. One of the Inuit people became a major figure in Hollywood eventually, uh, providing uh, the sets for many of the Hollywood movies uh, made about uh, uh, so-called Eskimo people, the Inuit people. Uh, others were just barely able to support themselves during the fair and then went back home, and that was about all they got out of it. So it's really kind of a mixed uh, result for the indigenous people who came to work at the fair. Like any good history book, it sounds like the answer is it depends and it's complicated. Exactly. So looking at the book as a whole, what takeaways do you hope people come away from uh, your book with? Well, I hope that um, people will be able to see that Native people were already viewing themselves as living in the modern world and participating in the modern economy that even though they were defined by others as peoples of the American past, they viewed America as their home and they lived in the present looking toward the future. They were needing to find ways to thrive here in the United States. And this was one opportunity for them to do that, to begin to participate in the cash economy, both in their home communities, for example, before the fair began and later on um, during the fair. Uh, Indians had the ability, Indians and other indigenous people had the ability to define their futures, and that's what they were doing. They were making rational choices in a rapidly changing world that they were part of. I'd also say that I hope that people would look at the appendix, at least briefly, where I've listed the names of hundreds of uh, Native people who participated in the fair uh, that I collected from just a broad variety of resources. I had to collect them piecemeal in order to, to put that list together. But one of the things this helps do is to personalize the history. Uh, oftentimes when we read Native history from past times, we might know the names of the leaders in Native communities, but not a lot of the other people. Uh, and one of the things this has done for me as a historian um, has given me the opportunity to connect with families of people who participated in the events that I write about, uh, including the World's Fair. Uh, people look at that list and they say, hey, that's my relative, and they contact me, and I'm able to learn more then about uh, the role that their family played in that history. Uh, and so uh, part of my audience is uh, a historical uh, audience, you know, and a general audience, but part of my audience is the people from the tribal communities that I'm writing about there. Uh, so I hope that both Native and non-Native people can take some of those things from this book. I'm really glad that you mentioned the appendices there. Um, uh, they take up a pretty good amount of space. It's almost like an additional third of the book is these really amazing appendices that you're talking about. And uh, anyone that's doing research on the 1893 uh, World's Columbian Exposition will find those invaluable resource. Yes, thank you. I, it, it's really time consuming work to put those lists together because 
occasionally, like when I found the um, contracts for Buffalo Bill, all of a sudden I had all 74 of those people's names. Uh, and there's a, sh- sh- a shipping list uh, from the ship that the Inuit people came to Boston originally uh, from Canada and, and, and then made their way across country to Chicago that listed all the Inuit people. But many times, uh, you know, there's a name in a newspaper article here, and there's two names in a letter there and a different archives. There's names of other uh, people. And so just organizing those lists is really um, time-consuming, but uh, also uh, really valuable work to do. So, Dave, uh, now that this book has been out for about a year, is there anything that you've been working on in the in the interim? Can you give us a preview of what's coming up next for you? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm kind of going back to another bre- to the other branch of my research work. Uh, I, I wrote uh, my first two books on the history of the Menominee Indian Tribe in Wisconsin, and then my next book was on a tribal group from Western Oregon, the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayusla Indians. And in both those cases, I was one of the things I focused on was a 1950s policy. Uh, of the federal government of terminating its relationship with uh, its uh, its legal relationship with Indian tribes, and that policy was called termination. And I'm looking at a kind of, at termination then from kind of a broader perspective uh, and a and a focused perspective at the same time. And it turns out <laughs> that when I was doing the Menominee work, uh, one of the things I found was that. Uh, the tribe had sued the federal government for the, the Menominee tribe has a, an incredible forest resource and they were able to get uh, Senator Bob LaFollette to pass a law to author and pass a law in 1908 that protected their forest for uh, in perpetuity, they called it for um, uh, sustained yield management. And the federal officials who oversaw the forest in the 1920s and the 1930s mismanaged it to such an extent that the tribe sued them successfully and won a $10.5 million judgment. Uh, But when you win a judgment in the courts like that, you don't get the money unless Congress appropriates it. And uh, Congress decided to tie that funding into termination and essentially said, if you want this money, you have to agree to terminate your relationship with the United States. Uh, tribal leaders didn't understand that's what they were agreeing to at the time, but they um, agreed to accept the money. And then it turned out with that, they agreed to terminate their relationship with the United States. And uh, very shortly after that, one of the tribal members was qu- quoted in the Milwaukee paper as saying, we were bribed with our own money. So that's the working title of my book is Bribed with Our Own Money. And it's about federal termination policy. And I was wondering whether that was kind of a one-off or whether that was something that um, was part of a broader federal policy. And it turns out it was part of a broader policy that whenever tribes had money that was judgment money or money coming in for other reasons where they would have a windfall of funds, the federal the Congress tried to get them to give up their their legal relationship with the United States as kind of uh, they used the funding as a pretext for that. Uh, and so I, I'm looking at 
several different tribes, some of whom ended up being terminated and some of whom ended up not being terminated to kind of tease out how that policy worked. Uh, so that's the focus of what I'm working on now. Uh, and uh, it, as I said, it grew out of uh, my past work and it's moving away from the focus on urban Indians back to federal policy in relation to uh, reservation communities. David R. M. Beck is a professor of Native American Studies at the University of Montana. His newest book is Unfair Labor, American Indians in the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Thanks for having me, Steve. <laughs>